Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Hey, everybody. Today for the School of Unlearning podcast, we are sitting down with author and executive coach Amy Eliza Wong. A little bit about Amy and her background. For about the last 20 years, Amy has devoted herself to the study and the practice of transformation. As a certified executive coach using expertise in transpersonal psychology, design thinking, interpersonal neurobiology, and conversational intelligence, Amy has provided thousands of transformative experiences for individuals, executive teams, and organizations. Amy graduated from UC Berkeley with a BA in mathematics and has an MA in transpersonal psychology from Sophia University. Today, she works with some of the biggest names in tech and offers transformative leadership development and internal communication strategies to executives and teams around the world. When she's not writing, researching, and speaking, Amy spends her time in the Bay Area with her husband and two children. And for anybody listening, this episode is really for you if you're someone who's feeling a sense of unrest or dissatisfaction um, with your life. Perhaps you've met a lot of your goals. You have a lot of things on paper that look good, and yet you still have this nagging sense of maybe dissatisfaction, or you don't have the feeling of joy or meaning that you want to have. So in our conversation today, Amy um, is sort of a bright light of wisdom and has used all of her life experiences and her professional development to help us see and break down why we desire what we desire, what actually drives us to pursue our goals, and what questions and frameworks we can ask and use along the way that help to ensure that we're living on purpose. My favorite part of today's conversation was really the nuance that Amy brings to the self-help and self-development industry. She encourages us to think about um, how the contrast or the struggles of our life are opportunities to glean great insight and great learnings that help direct us to move forward. And one of my favorite chapters of her book, Living on Purpose, is why the word should um, is possibly really triggering and carries a lot of heavy energy and guilt and just examining our relationship to the word should could really uh, transform our day and transform our language and energy. So this uh, whole episode is uh, high energy. It's riddled with insights. It's a really, really human conversation with two people who are dedicated to um, improving their lives and the lives around them. So enjoy this podcast and find out more about Amy on alwaysonpurpose.com. Amy, welcome to the School of Unlearning podcast. Oh, I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm so excited. Um, I came across your work, Living on Purpose, your most recent, your publication. And I just thought to myself, like, this book is a book of how to live a meaningful life. And, you know, um, you've shown us that. So I'm so excited to dive into um, some of your tips and also just, you know, highlight your personal story, which has been a uniquely inspirational one. And um, I just, I'm so excited because I know my audience uh, pretty well, and I think they're going to love everything you have to share. So again, thanks again. And I just can't wait to get into it. It's an honor. Thank you. Let's do it. All right. So living on purpose. I mean, we're going to talk about this in some of the core questions I have for you. Um, How do you define living on purpose? It's a big one, but like, what does that mean to you? What are some of the first words or feelings that come up when you think about living on purpose? You know, it's funny. I get asked this question all the time. And my answer is always slightly different depending on what I'm feeling right then in that moment. So maybe that's on purpose. I don't know. (laughs) But living on purpose really is it's a a mindset and a state of being where you really harness this superpower of choice that we all have. Mm -hmm. And something that I think is true for a lot of us, especially coming out of the pandemic, is that we've gotten really good at living on autopilot. And, you know, what does that, what does autopilot mean? Autopilot means that we are largely reacting to our moments with patterns and habituated behaviors, habituated mental processes that just kind of have us existing, getting Mm -hmm. by. And I know with the pandemic, a lot of us got really good at that because we were just really trying to get by. It was hard. It was really hard. Mm -hmm. And so, living on purpose really is waking up from that. And it's, wow, okay, I have choice here in each of my moments. I have a choice to either react, which means 
to redeploy these patterns and these behaviors that I tend to do without really thinking about it Mm -hmm. or respond to that moment. And what does respond mean? Respond means to actively choose a um, a, a way of interacting with that moment. And so why is that important? Because when you're in the driver's seat of your life, that is when you start to really feel alive because you are choosing what to perceive, how to interpret it, what to think, what to believe, and then what to then say to, you know, what you think, say, and do, which that's, that's where the magic of life lives. That is where the magic of life lives. What I love about your book too, and I think it separates itself from a lot of the books in its genre, is that it's it's not that you can create the most beautiful life externally with the goals and the things that you achieve. It's about how you view the process to get to them and really the, the inner landscape, like the, the choice. You might still have a really bad day. You still may not get that job, but the choice on reactivity is always yours. And I think that's a really powerful message that um, needs to be shared and needs to be shared with nuance. I think you do that so well in your book as well. Um, so I was so drawn to a few things in the book, um, but I, I, I always ask this question because I think it's so cool for people who are fans of, of your work to understand a little bit more about you. I would love to just hear as we get, as we go through the timeline of your life into your book, who are some influential people that helped shape um, your worldview growing up? Um, and that worldview may have evolved, but who are some of the people that really shaped who you um, have become? Absolutely. I'm really lucky because my, my grandma and my mom were really quite metaphysical and very spiritual and really early on. I mean, I must've been five, six, like early memories of sitting at the dining room table, conversations with my grandma and my mom, uh, being so enthralled with what they were talking about, which was just that consciousness and the power of consciousness, the, the conscious mind, that consciousness creates, you know, my, the thinking is causative. That's something we would say often is that thinking is causative. And I was so in awe of this and I just wanted to talk about this stuff all the time. And so that's really where it started. It, it got started where I recognized very early that my state of mind really dictated the quality of my experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and whether that was if I'm thinking really negative thoughts, I'm going to feel negative. If I'm thinking positive thoughts, I'm going to feel positive. But then as I got older and started to read and and get into this deeper, I remember in fifth grade, I stumbled upon Thich Nhat Hanh in the public library. And that was a big influence for me around mindfulness, around, oh my gosh, to harness our power of focus as also a part of this, you know, how we create a reality. And so dove deep into that as, you know, as much as I could in an elementary school, right? Where you got <laughs> mindfulness. And then quickly that evolved into, I think it was around seventh grade or so, you know, Deepak Chopra started to come online. So this was years before many of his works. And I remember, I just loved his voice because I think there were these audio tapes that there was this program that my mom had gotten and we'd listen to it on long car trips. And really, I mean, just all of, all of everything that Deepak Chopra had to say was I so resonated with. And then Wayne Dyer was also a very big influence as well. Loved every one of his works and really resonated. And And so then that really just, all that really stayed with me and it's become part of my DNA, really. Yeah, Yeah. I love that. Those are some incredible influences. I mean, to have those conversations going on in your household from, you know, influential figures and loving figures, and then to be able to be in fifth grade and to, you know, come across Thich Nhat Hanh, I mean, that's pretty pretty amazing. What a library you had. I don't think I found Thich Nhat Hanh until I was (laughs) one. I mean, I know, well, you know, I, I credit my mom, I guess we were just browsing down maybe the psychology section. I don't even know. And for some reason, cool. it just, you know, those, you know, those instances where a book will just pop off the shelf and yeah. for, for no reason that's happened a couple of times in my life where it's, I swear the universe is like, Amy, read this book. And then a book will pop right. off the shelf. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what works. I think you speak about synchronicity and like elements of that in your book. Yeah. Um, do you follow or read Pema Chodron at all? Oh, I love Pema Chodron. Absolutely. Yes. I, I recommend her a lot to my clients too. But that your story of Thich Nhat Hanh and also through the others like Wayne Dyer reminded me of, I was 22 going through some hard stuff after a car accident and my college basketball coach sent me her book, When Things Fall Apart. And I didn't know anything about why, why would I want things to fall apart and stay apart and stay on the ground and stay, you know, disheveled. And 
you know, such an, such an American athletic mindset I had of like, fix it, do well. And, yeah. you know, and that was really the turning point for me. That was one of those books like you shared where I was like, wow, okay, there's a new way to think. And that way to think like expanded my way of, of consciousness and interacting with the world in a really good way. Oh, I love how you say that. And, you know, and the way I think about it, it's, it's how can we capture new ways of thinking to liberate ourselves? Because yeah. we, get, so, get, we get so stuck in ways of thinking and we suffer mm-hmm. and we don't realize that it's self-imposed. And so mm-hmm. again, part of living on purpose is waking up to, ah, I can actually change the way I'm thinking about this, the way I'm framing this. I can look at this in new ways and liberate myself into a state of freedom and, and relief and joy. So right there, exactly. I love that. Um, and we're going to get to this towards the end, but you also in your book, and I'm just going to plant the seed, you, you really track your, your sort of process of growing up and living on purpose seems to be different in each different stage. You know, you, you come back, you challenge maybe assumptions you had that guided you when you were young about meditation. And now yet you can think a bit more graciously and compassionately about your younger self. So I, I do want to get into that because there's an element of humility that comes with, with living and aging that living on purpose will, will change. It will look differently. And I, I'm going to give you the mic in that moment, but just want to yeah. that. <laughs> I, love so that. <laughs> I want you to discuss how we can be compassionate towards our younger self too. But so you say, um, and this is, I think, again, what um, really drew me to your work too, is you said, you said at one point in the first couple of chapters, you know, the focus is less about, less about what you achieve and more about how you experience and, you know, enjoy your precious and beautiful life. Um, so that idea of focusing on the how versus the what, that was influenced from a young age too, right? Or is there another pivotal moment where you realized the goals that I want to achieve, like they, they look great, but there's something deeper behind the pursuit of the goals. You know, I think that's a great question, Alyssa, because I don't know if I've really identified a pivotal moment that Mm -hmm. helped me shift from an achievement oriented mindset to a way of being oriented Mm -hmm. mindset. And Well, I guess there was that pivotal moment of which I talk about in the book where I had that breakdown where it was, there was this demarcation between that just divided my life from where I was a human being reaching for spirituality, shifting to a spiritual being reaching to humanity. But I think it was, so yeah, there is a pivotal moment, but what I recognized was that I had been efforting so hard to achieve And what I didn't realize at the time, but I could see with clarity in this moment, I had been efforting so hard to achieve a state of being, but really through a thing. Well, what Mm -hmm. was the thing? A title, an amount of money, a status, Mm -hmm. you know, a set of conditions that were quote unquote ideal. And I was efforting and efforting and efforting and efforting as we all do, because Mm -hmm. that's what I, you know, we're largely taught and it was in this wake up moment of, oh my gosh, in this efforting, I am completely contradicting the goal here. I am miserable. I'm exhausted. I am completely not present. I am missing out on so much of this beauty around me. And for what? A thing that I think is going to make me achieve something, which it's so not even this, this state of being, which is peace and joy and well, peace of mind and, and freedom and presence, like whew, completely not associated to this efforting process. And so that's really where I woke up to, oh my gosh, no, 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 no. It's not about the conditions. Mm-hmm. We think we want conditions. That's not true. We want the conditions because we think it's going to make us feel a certain way. So that's really where I pivoted to the, ah, we got to be focusing on the how, because it's not yeah. the what, it's the how. Yeah, I think that was a really like incredible moment, light bulb moment too, reading your book when you said, you know, you want the feeling you believe those things are going to give you. Um, and, and so many of us, I think, do think we're really self-aware. We, we do the work, we might meditate, we do journaling, we do all kinds of different practices to become aware of our blind spots. Yeah. And yet still, probably because of marketing, probably because of the narrative and culture, we are drawn towards wanting these objects, these things, these milestones. And I guess what I would, I want you to say is it's okay to have milestones. As oh, Yeah. A hundred percent. Oh, they're fun. Absolutely. I mean, that's the creative process, right? It's, oh, I've got this idea. There's something I want to create in the world. Let me go forth and do it. And so I, I, yeah, and I say this in the book too. It's, yeah, absolutely put down those five-year plans. Absolutely create those vision boards, but don't get hung up on the thing. Like, let that be 
a signpost or a guidepost as a that's that's kind of pointing you in the direction of and and just uh, pointing you in the direction of what you really want, which is a feeling. And if that's always illuminated, you'll be well on your way. Yeah. So tactically, if someone's listening, would you recommend that as they build their five-year, three-year sort of vision board of what they want to, where they want to be, live, do, uh, who they want to love, should they be starting with feelings, like just as like a marker of where they, what feelings they want to achieve? Yeah. So I, this is great. So the first question I always ask is, okay, just for a moment, set aside what you think you want, right? Whether that's the house on the hill or a new job or whatever. Let's just put that on hold. Just for a moment here, what is it that you want to feel? Mm-hmm. What do you want to make true for yourself that isn't currently true, but if it were, it would make all the difference in the world? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you want to make true in terms of feeling? Oh, actually, I want to be more spacious. I want to feel more present. I want to feel more in, tapped in. I want to feel whatever it might be. So then once you start to get in touch with that, it's like, oh, that's what I want to feel. Okay, cool. Now, from that place, great. What do you see now? And things might start to shift a little bit. But what I have found is that the moment you bring into focus what you want to feel, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you have this wiser perspective on what you think you want. <laughs> and it starts to yeah. shift like, oh, do I really want that then? Do I really want to go for that job? Huh? Maybe not. And just by virtue of illuminating what you really want, which is a feeling, all of a sudden the landscape shifts. And what now is visible in terms of options becomes it's different because you wouldn't, it wasn't available to you without that illuminated focus of what you want to feel. So it's, it's, you, you have new options with that, with that clarity. Yeah. What if someone has a desire to like have this right job or this house or these sort of milestones and they, they know they want to feel peaceful and, and calm and they know that this job would offer them that, but this job doesn't pay the money that would facilitate that life. And what do you, what, how do you advise or sort of coach people who are sort of at this crossroads of maybe compromise? Like, well, if I really hustle, I do two jobs or this job isn't really my ideal thing, but I know it can allow me to live this life or provide for my family. How do you coach or help people work through those sort of life moments? Yeah. Well, it's, well, the way I would say, let's just bring it back to the now moment because all that's real is right now. What's not real is five years from now. What's not real is 10 years from now, but what's real is right now. And what's most important is how you feel right now. And so if you feel good and you feel excited and energized about working these two jobs because you believe in these two jobs and you like the idea and you're energized by what it's providing, then absolutely go forth. Because the work is to find the feeling now. And if it's not now, well, then what's the point? Because that's all that life is anyway. It's right now. And so it's really about bringing it to the absolute present moment and finding the feeling now. And so if you can get present and say, well, then, yeah, but I really do want to work these two jobs. And I'd say, great, then let's find a way to narrate and look at this so that you are excited about this. Because if you're not excited about this, I'm going to guarantee it's because of what you're telling yourself. It's about the narrative you're telling. And so if you want to be excited, then how do we need to reframe this so that you can be excited? Because if you're not feeling good, then what's the point, right? Mm -hmm. And not that we, it's not that like, oh, we should just be feeling good all the time. There is no such thing as hard work and there's no such thing as pain. No, 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 it's not about that. It's, you can be working hard and feel energized and you can feel hopeful. You can feel excited, right? And so that's really what we're going for is that feeling of of vitality versus depletion. Yeah, I love that coming back to the present moment. I mean, that's like, that's spot on. Um, and that might be literally and figuratively a day-to-day thing, checking in on that, you know, like a moment to moment thing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I also, I have a mantra where I say, think as far as it feels good, right? Because in the process of creating, we'll want to be visioning out things, right? Because I get this a lot. Oh, Amy, what's your five-year plan? Oh, what's your strategy? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I only think as far as it feels good. And how far is that? Well, right now it's maybe six months from now, or, you know, and later today it might be three months from now. I don't know, but it's really visioning out and planning ahead so far as it feels good. But yeah. if I get too far because it's too abstract or it's too uncertain or it's too, I don't, then I don't, I don't go that, I don't think that far. It's like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm just only, I'm going to go as far as it feels good. And then that's yeah. where I stop. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's funny. I'm thinking about life in like the corporate world too. There's a lot of people who you know follow me or I've worked with that of that are in the corporate world, and I often tell them like that's that's actually good strategy to to be mindful, to be present. And obviously, you're giving us these practical tools, but that's actually pretty good strategy. And visioning, yeah. good visioning probably comes from that. I imagine, yeah. I think that's absolutely right. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, you said at one point, and this is part of your beginning of the book, you said, you know, this is, life is not about figuring it out. It's about feeling it out. And I love that so much because we've been taught since at a young age to figure things out. I even find myself all the time too. And I'm in, you know, this world of like self, you know, um, self-development, professional development. I often find myself, I have to figure this out. I have to figure this out. And, you know, you, you catch yourself and you come back, but can you tell us a little, expand upon that? What does it mean to stop figuring it out and to feel it out? I think we're, we led up to it a little bit, but can you break it open a little yeah. more? Yeah, absolutely. So what I break down and what just seems so obvious once you start thinking about this, like, oh, how did I not see this before? Is that everything we want as humans and everything we think we want really isn't for the thing right? We set goals, we have desires. It's like, I want a new car. I want a new house. I want to, I want to retire, whatever it might be. And we get so caught up into the, in the thing. Well, I want this thing because there's this blanket assumption that the thing is going to make us happy and it's universal. And so we have desires because we get somehow it's going to make us happy. But really, if you, if you really stop and you think about it, well, it's like, well, why do I want this thing? Well, it's not for the thing. The truth is everything we want, we want it because we think it's going to make us feel a certain way. Underneath every desire is a desired feeling state, which is truly what's wanted. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you get clear on that, it's like, oh, right. So sure. We could say blanket it's happiness, but it goes deeper than that. No, maybe it's freedom. Maybe it's meaning. Maybe it's liberation. Maybe it's relief. Maybe it's presence. Maybe it's love. Who knows? But there is a feeling that we really want. And so what, so this adage here to, to feel it out, don't think, figure it out, essentially honors the idea that, wait, what I'm after is a feeling, not a mm-hmm. thing. And in order to really realize the life that we are meant to be living, this life we were born to live, to realize a life of, of joy and fulfillment is to bring that, that awareness into the picture. Oh, okay. Well, I think I want to retire, but actually it's because oh, I want spaciousness. I want yeah. freedom. Okay. Okay. So but the moment you get that feeling illuminated now, it's like, okay, well, if that's the feeling I want, what choices do I make now that actually align to that versus being hell bent on, well, this is the thing. I think I need to do in order to get there. Because what happens is when we get so attached to the thing, we start strategizing. Okay, got to do this, got to do that. And so that's where we start to analyze and strategize our way to our goals. And in the process, completely lose the ultimate map that this is, apt, that this is supposed to be mapping to a feeling. And in the process of trying to attain that thing, it actually often forsakes the feeling. So yeah. we try to achieve this thing and we end up feeling states that are complete opposite of what we want. Yeah. And then, and then, and then this is what happens. We get the thing and then we're, and then we feel completely hollow and it's like, okay, well, what's the next thing we do this enough. Next thing, you know, it's a midlife crisis. It's like, what is my life about? Right. Because it's, we've, we've done everything we can to figure it out. So figuring it out, it's not that it's a bad thing to strategize or analyze your way forward. It's, but there's a bigger picture here. And if we really want to live into our, our, our most fulfilled life, we want to be feeling our way into our choices more than strategizing our way to a thing. Yeah. I think that you said a few words that reminded us, reminded me of this concept, like that we're rhythmic beings. Like we, we can have strategy and and vision and all of that, but we actually are like living, breathing beings. And we don't often get to check in with that. Um, I know you talk a little bit about in your book, but what are some of the best ways, like on a day-to-day basis, people can check in with, are they honoring that feeling state? Are they moving towards their goals with like a sense of alignment um, Mm. to what say they want to feel? What are some practical ways people can keep doing this? Yeah, great question. I like to, well, there's, there's two ways to do this. So the first is mapping this desired feeling state 
right? It, it, in ways where if I'm going to move towards the feeling, I'm going to be moving towards something that feels expansive, something mm -hmm. that feels life-giving. Now, I also use my body in this process because my body and where the energy in my body is also telling me what's happening. And so if I'm going to be feeling it out, I'm going to be feeling for the thing that feels really open and expansive and generative. And that generally feels this, the, the, the locus of energy generally tends to be more in my chest or lower in my torso. And it's kind of this energized, open feeling like, and it's almost as if it's the feeling associated with a big sigh of relief or the feeling of like, have you ever gotten an idea? And it just feels like, or like the breath got knocked into you. You're like, and it feels really inspiring and opening and energizing. Okay. That that's feeling it out because I like to think that, you know, if we're going to move in the direction of, of greater fulfillment, we want to move in the direction of of expansion and creation, because that, that is an expansive, that's a creative quality is to expand, to grow. Now, the other quality to this is constriction and contraction. Mm -hmm. Now, what I, what I know about the universe, the universe is expanding by virtue of expansion and contraction, expansion and contraction. That's the creative process. So I don't think as humans, we're ever going to be in a period where it's just pure expansion. There's always going to be contraction. But what's contraction? Contraction is when you're going inward, right? And it's tight and it's, it's contracting in. Do we create in those moments? No, but those moments are necessary for the expansion. So that's fine and that's all and that's good. But if I'm going to make a decision, if I'm going to choose between X and Y, right? And if I'm thinking about X and X makes me feel <gasps> expansive, like for example, do I want to go to this meditation yoga retreat for, for um, a weekend away, right? Like I feel expansive or do I want to do this Cancun spring break thing with all my friends and constriction, right? And so you're going to feel this, is it open or is it closed? Is it expansive or is it tight? And you can yeah. kind of tell where it is in your body because the constriction part too, when you're figuring it out, there's a lot of energy in the head, right? Yeah. So like now, if you're strategizing towards a goal, you can feel the frenzy in your head because you're going, oh, because I'm going to get here and then the, and so I can tell for me personally, if I'm feeling it out because the energy feels more in my chest or if I'm figuring it out because it feels really frenzied in my head. And those yeah. will be my ways of being able to tell, okay, do it. and what I have found is the path of least resistance all the time, the yeah. path of least resistance to the most abundance is the one in which I feel out. Even yeah. though my logic might say that's a really weird idea. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, yeah. and it's always turns out that that's the path of least resistance to the most abundance in the most delightful way. Yeah, that, that was incredible. I, I really appreciate too, the idea of, um, you know, um, uh, sort of expanding and contracting and, um, that the contraction moments aren't bad. They're actually, they might be good data to figure yeah. out what you're scared of or what you're like, Oh, pause, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, we have to honor the contraction. We have to honor all these down moments in the pain. This is where we get to know ourselves because, yeah. you know, there's so much wisdom in, in order, you know, Esther Hicks, if you're familiar with Abraham Hicks, you, you know, she says very clearly, you can't know what you want unless you know what you don't want. Yeah. So we yeah. very much have to know what we don't want. And how do we do that? It's by going through those constricted, contracted moments. It's like, oh, okay, well, went through that. Don't like that. So that means I must like that. And so it's very important information for sure. It is. And I also think to, to everyone listening to, and to myself, like I, I, when I think about those moments of contraction, it takes um, obviously some awareness and obviously the right support around you, but it takes some skills to work through the moments of expansion and contraction, you know, like it's one thing to know it and have that roadmap. I mean, your book shows us that and your work, but like to have the skills to be like, okay, breathing deeply, journaling this out, working with the coach, whatever it is people need to do. Um, but there, there are skills required to rumble with contraction and then to take the data from that and be like, cool, cool. I'm, I'm expanding again. <laughs> what have I learned? And, and it, I think it, I actually kind of think like a lot of addictions might come from, this is, this is a broad statement, but loosely I will say like, this sense of grasping and addiction might come from our in our, our uh, lack of confidence to rumble with contraction, you know, to mm. rumble with that like fear state of like, I'm going in and like this project I was so excited about is crumbling yeah. and it was expensive 10 days ago. And now it is like the worst idea ever. <laughs> and yeah. I don't know, I, 
I have to imagine there's something there around like our knee-jerk reaction to, to feel good and to not be able to sit with contraction. I, I just like that you're alluding to that. You know? oh, I think that is so beautifully said, Alyssa. I think you're absolutely right. That need to run from the contraction mm-hmm. and mask it, to numb it, to sedate it, to control it, you know, we'll reach for something to, to avoid that contraction. But if we can decide that contraction is a necessary part of the experience and not make it unwanted, that it's just a beautiful part of the experience, that it's information that's making us wiser and more compassionate and more and and stronger and and just decide, hey, this is a part of the process. Progression is not linear. It's not this linear path that just keeps going up and up and up. It is wild and it's an up and down and it's it's gonna be amazing and it's gonna hurt and that's okay. But to accept it all, I think is really, that's really the key. And, you know, it's compassion. It's having compassion for the process. And I'll tell you personally, so I've, I eat, drink, sleep, breathe, everything we're talking about here. And Mm -hmm. I'm still getting better at this. I will catch myself and I'll be in these moments where I'm looking at two things. It's like, okay, do I take this on? Which, oh, it sounds like such a great idea. And my head is doing everything it can to convince me that I'm feeling it out. Oh, but Amy, this is like so great. And then, but I can tell deep in my heart, like, "Mm, probably not. You should probably say no to this thing, but I'm like, nope, I'm going to listen. Nope. You know what? I'm feeling it out, feeling it's good. And then I go forth and then it bites me in the butt. And I'm like, ah, Amy. (laughs) Yeah. 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 For people to hear that, you know, like your life is dedicated towards these subjects and, you know, and human development. And I think people need to hear that. It makes them I remember back in my former career, I was a nutritionist and health coach. And I would tell people like, I would post a picture of like me eating ice cream or something like that. And I would have like DMs up the wazoo and be like, I'm so excited you're eating ice cream. It makes me feel better that you're like human. I'm like, yeah, like that's the point. That's the whole point of why I got into this field was I really needed to figure out how to eat better. But like, I think that's a breath of fresh air. And I actually, when I read books in this genre, I, I'm actually like really most drawn towards authors who are authentic and sharing their story and also who are like, cool, cool. I'm still learning. I'm still pivoting. Oh, yeah. I'm still using my tools and getting new tools to figure this out because, you know, to be a human, I think is really, it's a humbling experience. Like oh. if you're like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It is a humbling experience. So well said. Yeah. So well said. (laughs) So one of the things I loved also um, midway through the book or in the earlier side, you talk about should being the worst word in the the English language. Um, And it's so funny that you said this. I don't think I've heard anyone else say this, but I feel like I've been walking around Brooklyn, New York and talking to some friends and colleagues. And I'm like, I'm telling you, like nothing good comes from the word should. That's exactly what I say. Nothing good comes from this word. Tell me when it's helpful. (laughs) Tell me when you're really, and, but I did like how in your chapter, and I'm going to let you take the mic on this and run with it. You do kind of say like, there's certain kinds of ways that you should that are just more curious and gentle other ways that definitely creating, creating some drama and some tension. So uh, take the mic. Why is should um, a word that we need to pay attention to? Yeah. So should, it's not the word itself, right? But the word, the word encapsulates, generally speaking, a way of going about how we navigate that is that is destructive to our efforts. So the and I say the word should is the problem, but really it's the energy behind should. Now, when we usually use should, it's that destructive way of being, but not all the time. And I think you you might have picked up on this in the book, right? Where so like if my best friend in the world says, Amy, Amy, you should come over here. You got to check this out. Right? Oh my god, you know. And it's like, hey, of course. And there's going to be times where we use the word should, but it's in that expansive, life-giving, feeling it out kind of energized, inspired way. That's, you keep going if that's the case, right? So again, it's not the word itself, but, but let's really look at the word should in the way that it's most commonly used, right? So for example, I should go work out. You should call your mom more. You should eat your vegetables. You shouldn't eat ice cream, Melissa. Oh my gosh, you're nutritious. You shouldn't do that. Right? You should, 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 should. And when you take stock of when you generally use that word, whether you're thinking it, you're feeling it, you're saying it, or it's being used on you, it feels heavy. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you should. And, and I, I'll, I'll be in a workshop with folks. So I'll say, okay, it, how does this make you feel? And these are the words I hear. Heavy, burdened, obligated, guilty, stressed, overwhelmed, right? So it's this like, ugh. And so then you, if you take a step back, you're like, well, what is, why? What's going on here? 
So then you have to ask, okay, well, should according to who? And then you think about it and you're like, okay, um, should according to me, I guess? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, if it makes me feel bad, why am I, why, what am I doing? So here's really what's going on with the word. The word should, the energy that we're talking about implies that there is this fixed reality outside of us that represents this ideal. Mm. Like, this is what it means to have the good life, be a good person, to do it right, to have it done on time. You got to do it just like this in order to, but da, 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 right? But as we were talking about earlier, it's like, it's all for a feeling. And the truth is there is no ideal out there. There is no big book in the sky, the big book of shoulds that details the perfect life. This is how it should be for you to be happy, for you to be free, for you to be, that doesn't exist, but we operate as if there is this fixed reality. And then we hold ourselves underwater to this imaginary standard, which doesn't even exist. But I mean, there's so much to this story, but I mean, that's interesting, but here's really what it, what's going on. When we use the word should, what's happening is that we are actively focused more on avoiding negative consequences than we are on reaching for what we want. And that right there is the destructive way of being because if I'm actively avoiding negative consequences, what's happening is I am focused on the stuff I don't want and I'm pushing it away from me. Now the act of pushing it away from me eats up resources, it eats up creative bandwidth, it eats up a lot of my mental capacity, and it's keeping me from innovating and seeing what I actually really do want. And so that's really what holds us back. Yeah. I love uh, some of the examples you put in the book, like I should be exercising, you know, well, I, I, the reality is I want to feel strong and energetic. And so I love that you're just kind of asking us to like think again more critically. It's not that should is a bad word per se. It's the energy behind it. So I love that. And I love how you gave it some nuance and you also gave it like a little bit of a seat at the table with a lot of context. Um, <laughs> I think that's really important, you know, and it speaks to the philosophy you have, which is it's not about the what, it's about the how. That's right. Um, that's right. Yeah, because the flip is this. I mean, it's because if, if we're not going to use should, well, then what's what's the practice? The practice is like, catch yourself. Okay, well, if I'm shooting on myself right now, oh, I should, wait, wait, no, 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 no. Okay, not what is it that I want to avoid? What do I really want to feel? What do I want? Yeah. And to really make that full pivot from pushing to reaching. Yeah. The moment you bring into awareness, oh, actually, this is what I want. Yeah. The moment that comes into awareness, all of a sudden your options change. Your energy, your motivation changes. Yeah, and that's, that's the trick. I love that saying our options change, you know, and I think it's like a very big nod to the power of language and the power of like, you know, again, where energy goes, I think that that helps all of us um, kind of orient ourselves with, you know, just a micro level, like a more purposeful hour, a more purposeful day, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, cause our, you know, our life is lived right now in these moments. So let's make it purposeful. Right. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Um, I have a few more questions and then we're going to get into some fun stuff towards the end. I'm going to do a rapid fire. If that's cool with you. Um, you got it. Yeah. Yes. Um, so this idea of inner critic, you know, it's a big part of what comes up when you start to cultivate awareness. I remember Pema said once in one of her talks, she said something like, you know, once you begin to meditate, you sit down, then you start to see the skeletons in the closet and you're like, oh, I didn't know that was there. And I thought that was a really interesting image, but also like really, really accurate, you know, like until you start to develop that deep sense of self-awareness on language or where you're putting your energy, um, uh, you know, or, you know, this idea of like avoiding feelings, you know, you, you don't really know what you're up against. And then once yeah. we start to develop this awareness, which is what your work is uh, encouraging us to do, we then do find things like the inner critic that are like yeah. pretty fierce and yeah. pretty persistent. Yeah. Um, talk to us a little bit about how we can best handle um, our inner critic and um, what works for you. Yeah. So this inner critic you know, it's funny, you'll, you'll talk to folks and they're like, oh, I really don't have an inner critic. Oh, I don't have any insecurities. And I'm like, oh, that might be true. But what I have found is most often the case is that it's so present that it's like the hum of the refrigerator. You just don't hear it. <laughs> and, and it's not that you don't think you have it. It's just that it's become so conditioned that you can't pick it apart from all the noise of your life. And 
and you know that the presence of the inner critic is it really has such an influence in our quality of experience because and because i call a I have coined it inner opposition, this, this inner force within us that's like this constant inner oppositional force with ourselves. There's like that that, that as, if, as if there's a part of us that's wrong or part of us that's off or not worthy or undeserving or bad or not good or not enough or whatever it might be, but there's this inner oppositional force. And it's, we can tell that it's there by virtue of how we feel. You know, do I feel energized, hopeful, optimistic, encouraged, enthusiastic, energized in this moment about this thing? Great. But if there's a part of me oh, I can't do it. I'm not sure. It's that hesitancy, that, that, that doubt, that self-doubt, that insecurity. That's really a symptom that something's, something's not right there in, 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 our, in our inner dialogue, in that relationship we have with ourselves, right? The inner critic and waking up, just first deciding to be curious mm-hmm. about the presence. Like, what is this relationship I have with myself? Do I believe myself to be fully capable? And sure, do I know myself to be fully capable? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Right. And so it's the moment we really start to become curious about well, what what is this relationship I have with myself? That's the first step in deciding to wake up to this force that I think all of us entertain to some degree. And I and I I think a lot of it has to do with how we develop as humans. Yeah, you, you're sort of talking to this idea of like our inner talk track. One of my other podcast class, po- podcast guests, Claude Silver mentioned this once, like she has a talk track and everyone has a talk track and she's a very successful, like, you know, high powered executive. And she's like, you know, if I don't watch my talk track, like I'm in trouble, you know, every day I, I really can ruminate. I can really go down paths that um, aren't serving me and, and or anybody else. So I think it's a, it's a nod to, again, the power of thinking and the power of language. Um, so I'm yes. happy you included that quite a bit. Yeah, no, I'm glad you say that because it's that talk track. It's what we say to ourselves, the thought we think, the thoughts we think dictate every bit of our experience because that that's going to determine how we feel. It's going to determine yeah. what we we do and we say, and it's going to determine everything. And so that's why in one of, in my book, I there's a chapter that's literally titled Be Intolerant of Feeling Crappy. <laughs> because yeah. if we're going to catch that talk track, it first starts with deciding I'm going to be intolerant of feeling crappy. Because yeah. the only reason I'm feeling crappy is because of what I'm telling myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So I think in the book, you mentioned that you first started meditating at like age 16. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Formally, I would say for sure. Formally. I mean, I had, I would try little bits out here and there because I know my mom did it, but formally at 16. Yes. Yeah. So it sounds like when I was reading this, you know, you, you sort of feel, it sounded like you were really coming to a sense of like, again, compassion and grace about your younger self that you dove into meditation and a lot of this for curiosity and so much just like levels of expansion. And that, in that, like you said at one point, you know, you got kicked into high gear into a sense of control about fixing, improving the self. And I think that it sounds like now you're looking back at your younger self with a sense of like, maybe more compassion and like equanimity about the pursuit to improve the self. So yeah, what I'm getting at is like, I think this is a really interesting conversation. The, the self-help movement, the, you know, inner growth movement is so important. It gives us awareness, it gives us skills and tools and hopefully community to yeah. like navigate life. But I, and I found that I resonated with this because at a young age too, I went into a lot of meditation, a lot of different practices to fix, to better, to improve myself. Cause I just wasn't accepting and loving what was coming up. So, yeah. um, am, am I tracking and is this, is this resonating with what you were alluding to? Um, yeah. A hundred percent. And if I could map kind of my own framework to what we're talking about here, what I recognize now is that at 16, I was devoted to transformation and personal development, to transcendence. But I was figuring it out. (laughs) I was using the powers of logic and strategy to attain a thing, not a feeling. Because what that was to me at a time was a state of being, which really was mapping to a thing in my mind. I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to meditate this many hours in a week. I have to do this. I have, And so I became obsessed with following a process in order to attain an idea. Yeah. I was not in touch 
with the real why behind this. And I wouldn't, and you know what, naturally, because I need to go through the process of all of this to discover what that feeling is in the first place. And so it makes sense to me that much later in my life, I can look back and go oh, and laugh and like, oh, sweet, Amy, you were so cute, so militant and so obsessive, but, but naturally so, because I had to kind of work my way to the realization that, oh, wait, I go through this process, not to attain a state, this thing, this idea, I go through this process of meditating and, and self, and, and self, um, betterment all the, to, as for a feeling, mm-hmm. for a feeling of, and that I had to identify by virtue of being on this path. So again, it, it's, it's a shift from figuring it out to feeling it out, but I naturally had to figure it out yeah. for me to recognize what it was I was trying to feel for. Yeah. I, I love this story, Amy, because I feel that it's really important for people in, in the world of, again, human development, spirituality, self-help to, to have this sense of humility and like reflectiveness that we sometimes have to go through that path of like architecting our life to be so, because we're terrified because we want this, you know? And I think that's a really nice thing to like, it's almost relieving to say that. I can say that now at my age, when I was in my early twenties, that I was doing something similar yeah. and I'm okay with that. You know, like I'm at peace with that. Cause that was part of what I actually had to go through too. And I think that you can, you can only know it once you get on the other side of it, you know, um, you can right. look back and go, oh, I see that was, uh, my, my, uh, gentle neuroses to figure things out. But <laughs> gentle neuroses. I don't know. That's my nicest way to say it. It's <laughs> perfectly said. It's exactly I mean, right. That's my loving, that's my loving talk track saying that we'll see. How <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Um, so we have about less than 10 minutes left and I want to just get into a couple of things, but you know, this is the school of unlearning. I think we've basically been talking about unlearning so many things very directly and indirectly here today. Um, and, and some the reason I started this podcast was that I wanted to have meaningful conversations with people who are also on the path of um, trying to unlearn or rethink or reorient themselves to beliefs and constructs and ways of living that weren't serving them. Um, so I'm going to ask you two questions and we'll jump sure. into rapid fire. The yeah. first question is, is when you think of the word unlearning, um, how do you define it or what do you feel when you hear that word? It feels like an unwinding and an opening up to new possibility. It's broadening a perspective that was narrowed in by having taken on certain constructs and frameworks. But it's like, what if, what if those are wrong? And so it's a, it's, it, it aligns with expansion. Yeah. I love that, that you're the first person to say it aligns with expansion. That's a pretty dope uh, explanation. <laughs> Boom. High five. <laughs> Um, um, my second question to you around the concept of unlearning is what are you personally unlearning? What are you, what are you still rumbling with that you're trying to make sense of, make peace with, reorient yourself with? I, I have an obsessive compulsive personality. I am an, a black or white. I am extreme. If I, I tend to, if I'm going to do something, I, I go all in. And so I feel like I'm constantly unlearning or relearning how to go about things in an expansive and peaceful way, mm-hmm. right? So for example, I, you know, my husband owns bars and we, you know, in, in the hospitality business and we eat, we drink and we celebrate. And there was a part of me like, you know what? I want to stop drinking. And mm-hmm. so I made that decision. I'm going to stop drinking. But then I went, just I'm stopping drinking. And then it's just so intense. And, and again, it's like, I get wound up in that. And so I feel like I'm it's like, well, wait, well, hold on. Can I not be so black and white about this? Like, how can I, how can I be more at ease with going about things so that it's not all, all or nothing? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's also like a speaks to like a sense of lightheartedness with the pursuit, whatever it may be. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's like the, the visual I have, it's the difference between like a tight piano wire and like a hammock in the, in the breeze. <laughs> it's like, which way do I want to go about how I'm going about things as a piano wire or kind of a hammock in the breeze, right? Yeah. <laughs> Hammocks are good. We like hammocks. Yeah. Um, okay. We're going to jump into some rapid fire. Just first words uh, that come to mind. Nothing's right. Nothing's wrong. It's just a share. Cool. Okay. okay. Um, vanilla or chocolate? Chocolate. Matcha or coffee? Coffee. Mountains or ocean? Ocean. Audible or hardcover book? Oh, depends on the author. 
I love both. It just depends on what I'm trying to, how I want to digest the information. Favorite song these days? Favorite song? Or any, any song that comes up for you. You know, I am such a sucker for Deep House. I'm like on the search constantly for like, you know, minor key, darker kind of moods. I love it. I just, I can't get enough of it. So there's not a song, but I'm always on the search. And that's always, it's always going on my Spotify playlists. <laughs> cool, cool. I might send you a song or two. I think you might like this new uh, musician. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. <laughs> um, the book that you're currently reading. Behave. Yeah. Who's behave by? Robert, how, what's it, what's, how do you say his last name? Robert Poskowski or something? Okay. It's about, it's, I mean, the book is like this thick about all things about human behavior and yeah, it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Awesome. Um, one word to describe your mood today. Energized. Cool. Um, advice for those who are just beginning to meditate. Know that you're always going to feel like you're doing it wrong. And it's that we don't do this for an end goal. We do it because we just decide to do it and enjoy the fact that we're doing it. And so as much as we can treat meditation and have that same relationship with meditation, like we do with brushing our teeth, you know, then you're well on your way, but this isn't something to celebrate or necessarily fall in love with just Honor it as a practice in the same way that you honor brushing your teeth as a practice. Love that. One piece of advice or a message you'd give to your younger self. You're doing great. Keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's it for rapid fire. Uh, Amy, thank you so much for coming on the School of Learning podcast. It's been a joy. Um, There might be a part two because we haven't even covered half your book yet, but we've covered some of the most important parts that I love so much. So thank you for doing the work you do. Thank you so much. This has truly been a delight. I look forward to our next conversation. Hey friends, thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone.